Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Simon Mills. I'm a senior associate at the Zen Group, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's FS Club webinar, where we're going to be discussing whether financial engineering can save the planet. I am joined by Dr. Robert Litterman, founding partner of Kipos Capital, a New York-based city investment firm. And prior to joining Kipos Capital, Dr. Litterman enjoyed a 23-year career at Goldman Sachs and Company. Now, as always, the agenda for this webinar is very simple. Following my introduction, our speaker is going to make their presentation and then we'll move on to the Q&A discussion. Now, I'm afraid that you are all muted, but you are able to submit your questions through the chat tool, which is on the right hand side of your screen. Please do chip in at any point of the proceedings. I'm going to be collating your questions and I will put them to Robert at the end. As with all of our FS Club webinars, we're going to be recording this session and you'll be able to access the slides and the presentation at a later date. Now, before we move on, I really must thank FS Club members who have opened up our webinar series to the public. With their help, since March of 2020, we have held nearly 500 of these events on topic as topics as diverse as money laundering, the metaverse and high salinity agriculture. The FS Club is the premier global executive knowledge network for technology and finance, where members and their guests can meet over a glass of wine to debate key issues which impact on financial services, technology and society. It's very much like a 21st century version of the city's 17th century coffee houses. And so, without further ado, I would like to introduce today's speaker, Robert. Tell us about uh, how financial engineering can save the planet. All right. Well, thank you so much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, well, I hope financial engineering can help save the planet. Uh, let's let's see what I have in mind. Why don't we go to the first slide? Okay. So I, I bring this up and uh, focus on billions versus trillions because orders of magnitude matter here. And uh, I, I want to focus in particular on a New York Times article where it talked about taxpayers subsidizing fossil fuels. And as I started reading this, I see that they say that uh, countries are, are paying a staggering $1.3 billion to make fossil fuels more affordable. And then they come up with a higher subsidy total of $7 billion when indirect costs are included. Now, that sounds big, but for those who have been paying attention to the subsidies to fossil fuels, it sounds like, wait a minute, I thought they were measuring that in trillions of dollars, not billions. And indeed, uh, when I read this, which, you know, I, I got this uh, email from the New York Times saying you might be interested in this story, maybe 12 hours later, I'm reading it and I say, wait a minute. And I look at the report and sure enough, in the report, it says trillion, not billions. So I, I, I sent my email to the New York Times and say, wait a minute, I think you got that wrong. Sure enough, they got it wrong. But isn't it amazing that the subsidies are off by three orders of magnitude and neither the reporter, the editor, or apparently anyone else even notices. Now, it matters. This trillions is a, a big subsidy. Let, let's go on to the next slide. I mean, if we think about what uh, is really the problem uh, that's being created by uh, global warming, 
the solution is to remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, to stop putting it in and remove it. And, uh, you know, uh, economists, business folks, many people have looked at the rate at which we're moving to a low carbon economy and say it's just much, much too slow. Uh, the UN has said that as well. And the estimate is that we need to increase the amount of investment in low carbon uh, capital and infrastructure uh, by uh, three times. Uh, globally, we're uh, investing about a trillion and a half. Uh, we need to get to like four to five trillion uh, of dollars of investment in low carbon capital per year between now and 2050 in order to get to net zero. So we have to accelerate this transition very quickly and, and by a large amount. Now, we know uh, from lots of experience what drives investment. And in the private sector, what drives investment are expected returns. Right now, most of the uh, investment in low carbon capital is actually coming from government subsidies and philanthropy. Uh, we need to get the private sector involved in order to get to the scale that we need. And so we need to increase the expected returns on investments in low carbon capital. Well, why are the expected returns too low? Well, it's very simple. It's because of this $7 trillion per year. That was the estimate for 2022 of subsidies to fossil fuels. Now, that estimate is not mine. That estimate comes from the International Monetary Fund, a group of economists who've done very careful analysis. Uh, a big part, there was a big increase, by the way, from uh, 2020, which is the last time they updated their estimate, it was about 5.9 trillion uh, to 7 trillion uh, last year. And that increase was driven in large part by additional subsidies in Europe uh, because of the Ukraine war. But the biggest part of that $7 trillion subsidy is what the IMF calls implicit subsidies. And in particular, the fact that we're not recognizing the damage done by burning fossil fuels, both in terms of particulates and also in terms of greenhouse gases and the uh, increased risk from global warming that comes from burning fossil fuels. Now, the IMF estimates that uh, they call it the social cost of carbon, the damage done by burning fossil fuels uh, at $60 per ton of CO2. Uh, and they recognize that that number is actually quite low that the most recent estimate of the social cost of carbon that comes from uh, a, a group of uh, environmental economists at Resources for the Future is $185 a ton. The uh, US EPA has a draft estimate of $190 a ton. And the IMF admits that if they use those estimates, the $185 estimate from Resources for the Future, they actually get to a global uh, estimate of subsidies of $11 uh, trillion in 2022. In the US, that would be over a trillion dollars of subsidies in the US alone. And you, you compare that to, let's say, the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the misnamed legislation that was the largest subsidies of uh, uh, low carbon energy ever in the United States. Well, that was originally estimated to be 370 billion over 10 years. 
now uh, a number of folks, including my old firm, Goldman Sachs, have raised their estimates. Uh, it might be as much as a trillion dollars over 10 years, but compare that to a, over a trillion dollars of subsidies last year. So we're trying to move in the direction of low carbon, but we've got a headwind of a trillion dollars in the US alone of subsidies to fossil fuels. So of course, it means that entrepreneurs and investors, asset owners do not expect high returns from investments in low carbon because they see the, the amount of uh, subsidies uh, that are going to low carbon. So when I say, how can uh, financial engineering uh, help save the planet? Well, the answer is very simple. Let's look at an example uh, that comes from the financial markets tips. Uh, in the US, these are real return bonds. They're called Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Uh, they were first uh, uh, issued back in, I believe it was 1997, under uh, the uh, Clinton White House. Bob Rubin, the former chairman of Goldman Sachs, was Treasury Secretary and his domestic Treasury advisor was Larry Summers. They, they, they uh, issued these Treasury Inflation Protected Securities as a way to uh, index inflation. And so they, they uh, made the coupon and the principal of these uh, securities indexed to inflation. So if there was high inflation, you get paid a higher coupon and higher principal. And what uh, that allowed is among other things, the market to project what inflation would be. So if you look at the difference in price between the inflation protected securities and the nominal securities, you can read out what is called uh, benchmark inflation. This is the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not benchmark, break-even inflation. It's the uh, inflation that would equalize the return on these two types of bonds. And so it tells you what the market expects. Now, why that is important is because it allows the Fed then to gain credibility in its policy of targeting inflation. So they can say, we want a 2% inflation rate. And then they can see what does the market expect? If the market expects 3%, they know they've got to do some work to bring down those uh, inflationary expectations. Now, back in the old days, I used to work at the Fed back in the 70s when we had you know, double-digit inflation in this country. And uh, Paul Volcker was trying to reduce inflation. The theory was that money growth causes inflation. And every week, the Federal Reserve would publish a measure, M1, of money supply. And you'd see it bounce up or down by billions of dollars every week. And then the Fed would react by draining uh, reserves or increasing reserves in the system to cause interest rates to go up or down. And you know, it was a, it was a backwards-looking approach. Uh, it, by the end of the year, you'd see that the numbers that you were reacting to during the year were completely gone because they've had seasonal adjustment and, and changes in the data, you know, corrections and so on. And, and so there's just an awful lot of noise in the system because it was backward looking and the Fed didn't have a lot of credibility. Over the years, and in particular, because we now can see what the market expects in terms of inflation, the Fed policy has been much more forward-looking. The Fed will announce what it expects interest rates to be, what it expects inflation to be, uh, real growth, and so on. And, and they've built up a lot of credibility by doing that. Now, what we're trying to do here 
is we're trying to do the same thing with respect to expectations of future carbon prices. So the incentives that investors and asset owners will have to invest in low carbon capital so that they can make profit from policy. Now, right now, investors, asset owners have very little idea what the incentives are going to be. Are they going to get paid for making these investments or not? And so that's what we're going to try and do. The first thing that we have to do is define what we mean by a carbon price. It's not well-defined. So let's, let's, that's why we at Kepos, and we work with another firm, Grow Intelligence, have defined something we call the carbon barometer. Now let's go to the next slide. So the carbon barometer is a measure of the marginal incentives to reduce emissions by country and over time. And it's based on looking at the actual policies that are being followed by these different countries. There's many different types of policies that create these marginal incentives. And so we look at the underlying policies, we get the data on how much uh, carbon dioxide these various policies apply to. Uh, we look at the emissions, energy use data, and we follow that over time. And so that allows us to get for each country, and we do this for now, it's I think 25 countries. Uh, it allows us to measure the incentives that they have uh, and how they change over time. Uh, when I say the average, so what we do is we take each of these uh, policies, we look at how much uh, emissions do they apply to, and that gives us an average price for those emissions then we average across all of the different policies, and that gives us a measure of the marginal incentive to reduce emissions uh, in that country. So let's go to the next slide. Now, this slide shows you the sad picture that we observed when we first uh, calculated this carbon barometer. These are now for our data updated through 2021, and you can see the different countries uh, ordered there by the strength of their emissions reduction policy. That's the orange bar. Uh, so if we start at the top and look at Spain, that's about $130 per ton of emissions. It comes from a number, number of different policies, uh, and we'll talk about those different policies, including the emissions uh, trading system that's in Europe, and including uh, fossil fuel taxes and other policies. UK is number two, also at about $130 a ton. Uh, France, Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Belgium. You can see all the top countries are European countries. You may notice there's also a little blue bar next to the orange bar. The blue bar is the amount of emissions that is coming from that country. Now, if you look in the middle there, you can see global with a little line leading down to it. And you can see $18.52. That is the global average price, the global average incentive. When we look at the incentives across all these different countries and then average by the amount of emissions in those countries. And you can also see, of course, the, the global uh, emissions, that big blue bar in the center. And you notice that the other big emitting countries, China, United States, India, they're all right there very close by with very low incentives. Uh, in fact, in the United States, the incentive to reduce emissions is below the global average at, at about $18 a ton. And then you can also see that there's a number of uh, countries 
uh, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, all the uh, you know uh, oil producing countries in the Middle East, uh, they have negative incentives. They actually are subsidizing the production of uh, emissions. And, and basically what they do is they have fixed prices on gasoline at below the market price. And that creates uh, a positive incentive to uh, burn fossil fuels. And therefore, they're actually subsidizing the production of emissions. In, in the UAE, where the next COP is going to take place, they have a approximately a $70 or had in 2021 uh, subsidy to the production of fossil fuels, just because their gasoline and uh, fossil fuels are below the market price. Uh, And and so it makes some sense here when you think about it from a geopolitical perspective, countries that have uh, a lot of uh, reserves of fossil fuels are in no hurry to, to get off of that. And in fact, of course, reducing demand for their national treasure is going to reduce its value. So they have an incentive to slow down the transition, whereas countries that have less uh, reserves of fossil fuels and are concerned about uh, the health of the planet, uh, they have an incentive to move more quickly. And and what we really need to do in order to uh, address this problem is we need a globally harmonized, strong incentives to reduce emissions. Uh, I would say, you know, the social cost of carbon, which is estimated at $180 a ton, is very uncertain. Uh, and, and so th- th- that number is designed to measure the amount of damage that a marginal ton of CO2 will do today. We don't really know for sure, of course. And, and these models are very uncertain. So if you ask me, my perspective is that of a risk manager. Uh, The question should not be, what's the expected damage caused by a ton of CO2? The question should be, at what price can we be very, very confident that we're not going to create huge damage to uh, the environment and and to human well-being? And the answer there is, there's a lot of uncertainty. (laughs) We, We should be north of the social cost of carbon. Depending on how confident you want to be, we should be well north of that. So we've today got a price that's around $18.5 a ton. And the right price, the appropriate price, is somewhere well north, I would say, of $200 a ton. And you know, if you ask when should we get there, you know, we're not talking about ending the use of fossil fuels. We're asking the question, when should we price them appropriately? Well, the answer is they sh- we should have done it 30 years ago. We wouldn't have an existential problem, but we didn't do it. And so we should do it now. We should do it as quickly as possible. And so what the carbon link bond is really designed to do is to say, what is the pathway that we're going to take to go from not pricing uh, fossil fuels appropriately to pricing them appropriately? How quickly can we do that? That's what this is really all about. So now let's go to the next slide. Okay, here are the seven major policies that we are currently monitoring. And I'll go through these just to give you a sense of what we mean by uh, a price on carbon. Well, the first thing, of course, would be just a straightforward carbon tax. And there are carbon taxes. In fact, I don't know, the, the World Bank estimates that there's something like 80 different venues around the world where there are carbon taxes. 
but they tend to be very low. And, uh, and so it turns out in the greater scheme of things, although carbon taxes are very straightforward, uh, they're not the most important policy for reducing emissions. Emissions trading systems, such as exist in the UK, in Europe, in a number of states in the US, including California, Oregon, Washington State, and what are called the REGI states, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Uh, those are probably uh, among the most important policies globally. And, and that's when you put a cap on emissions and then you allow the market to tell you what the, uh, the marginal price is uh, for someone who wants to emit uh, carbon dioxide in these uh, markets that have uh, emissions trading systems. It, it, globally, the most important uh, incentives to reduce emissions come from fossil fuel taxes. In the US, that's about 90% of our incentive. Our, our, our price is about $18 a ton, and almost all of that comes from the fact that we do have gasoline taxes, both state taxes and federal taxes. Uh, those are important uh, in Europe, around the world, uh, but the most common incentive are actually fossil fuel subsidies. Every country that we looked at has fossil fuel subsidies. Some are more important than others. Uh, in the U.S., there is investment tax credits that are given, uh, but around the world, and in many cases, there's just direct subsidies uh, to fossil fuels so that they do trade. Uh, at below the, what would be the market price. Uh, there are other uh, policies that we look at, feed-in tariffs. This is where uh, you offer a premium for renewable energy. Uh, for instance, uh, homeowners can put uh, solar panels on their house and sell electricity back to the grid. Uh, and that uh, is a subsidy to clean energy. Uh, there are renewable portfolio standards which uh, require electricity providers to have a certain uh, minimum or, or certain maximum amount of emissions. And if they don't, they have to buy uh, these energy credits from uh, renewable uh, energy providers. And then finally, low carbon fuel standards in the uh, fuel sector. If you have too much uh, carbon in your gasoline, for instance, then you have to uh, buy credits from uh, folks that are sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So those are the various policies that we look at. Uh, and then we can look by country, if we look to the next slide, uh, where these, uh, how these policies add up to a total. So uh, you can see uh, here uh, by country, uh, the carbon barometer price over there on the left-hand column, uh, globally $18.52. Where does that come from? Well, you can see, uh, first of all, fossil fuel subsidies are $11 globally. Uh, then you have a little bit coming from a carbon tax, uh, bigger from emission trading systems. The biggest uh, component globally is the fossil fuel taxes. And then you can also see feed-in tariffs and so on. Uh, now, you can look for individual countries. For instance, if we drop down uh, to the UK, uh, you see huge uh, fossil fuel subsidies, but also very large fossil fuel taxes and uh, emissions trading system. So when you end up adding it all together, uh, as I mentioned before, almost $130 a ton. Uh, in the United States, $18 below the uh, global average. And again, 90% of that almost all coming from the fossil fuel taxes. Next slide. Simon, yeah. 
And uh, so now, how do these carbon-linked bonds uh, work? Well, they function like Treasury inflation-protected securities. On the left-hand side, you can see that, let's say there's a promised uh, carbon barometer price, or it doesn't have to be carbon barometer. We can define this in a given country in a way that makes sense. But anyway, a promised government incentive to reduce emissions uh, in year 10 of $80 a ton. Now, if the actual price in year 10 is $80 a ton, then the government pays a fixed coupon. Let's say in this case, it would be three and a half percent. And presumably that would be the same coupon as a nominal bond. But now if instead of hitting their target, they don't, they only uh, price carbon in, 20, in 10 years at $50, well, then they have to pay a higher coupon. On the other hand, if in fact, they go beyond the targeted price that was uh, announced in the bond, then the coupon becomes lower. So what you've done is you've created, uh, first of all, a target price. So people have an idea where the government is intending to price carbon. And number two, the government has an incentive to hit that price because it reduces its borrowing cost. Now, uh, the third thing that the uh, carbon link bond would do is just like treasury inflation protected securities, you can read from the prices of the bonds what the market actually expects. So you can see on the right-hand side here, there were announced target prices in the issuance of the bond, and those are represented by the blue dots at different dates going forward. And then what you can see is at a point in time, the actual price of the bond will reveal what the market expectation is. So what we're uh, projecting here is a forward curve where the actual price of the uh, carbon link bond is below, well, is above that of the, uh, of the nominal bond representing a market expectation that the uh, government is not going to hit its targeted price. The government by seeing that can then react to that price and, and uh, toughen its uh, carbon pricing policies in order to increase expectations of those future prices. And so uh, what that allows investors to do and entrepreneurs, and this is really the key, is it allows them to hedge their risk that the government will not actually follow through on the policy that it's intending. By doing that, uh, the government can create uh, the expectations that they actually are gonna hit their uh, policy, or if not, an opportunity for entrepreneurs to hedge that risk. And by doing that, by hedging that risk and, and, and creating a market where you can hedge that risk, what uh, these carbon-linked bonds would in effect do is create a forward curve in carbon prices. And that's what we need in order to allow entrepreneurs to recognize the opportunity and hedge it, and therefore increase the amount of investment going into these low-carbon uh, you know, potential uh, capital and infrastructure and and new technologies. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, so uh, hopefully uh, this will work. I think, I think, is there one more slide? I think there's one more slide here. Yeah. So uh, basically, again, the idea is there's just a huge amount of fossil fuel subsidies, 7 trillion. If you uh, use the RFF estimate, 11 trillion. Uh, if you take my risk management approach, it's, it's more than that. It's just an unbelievable subsidy. When are we going to get rid of it? Because until we get rid of it, we're not going to solve this problem. We're not going to move forward at the pace that we need. Uh, 
Are, should we eliminate these subsidies by 2045, by 2035? I mean, uh, we should eliminate them tomorrow. What's realistic, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. The, the good news here, Simon, I'm, I'm after this, I'm ready to take questions. But the, the good news is that investors have long horizons, unlike voters who are going to be upset if their taxes tomorrow. Investors are concerned about what is the profitability over the lifetime of this investment. So if I'm building a power plant that's going to exist for 30 or 40 years, I want to know what are going to be the uh, benefits of making that low carbon rather than high carbon uh, investment today. And I'm going to look out over a long horizon. So uh, hopefully by promising uh, to price carbon, by creating an observable bond reveals the market price, by creating incentives for government to uh, follow through and, uh, and be credible, uh, hopefully we can make progress. And, and I will tell you that uh, this was uh, this idea for a carbon link bond was written up in the New York Times uh, earlier this summer. And there have been a number of uh, countries and states uh, that have come forward and say, you know, this sounds like an interesting idea. So, you know, maybe we'll get there. Robert, that was absolutely fascinating, and you've really energised our audience. We've got a pile of questions, okay. uh, but it's the the chairman. The privilege of asking the first one falls to me. Now, you really hit on a very important point here about fossil fuels. Um, in the words of Al Gore, being the very definition of uh, fossil fuel subsidies. Sorry, in the words of Al, Al Gore, being the very definition of insanity. But policymakers are afraid of exposing their voters to high energy prices. How can we break this deadlock? Yeah, well, you know, what I say to people is this is not a moral issue. This is an economic issue. People, you know, burn fossil fuels. They, 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 the behavior that they take is a function of the incentives that they have. And right now, governments are creating these huge incentives to burn fossil fuels. So what do you expect people to do? What do you expect the fossil fuel companies to do? They see an opportunity to make profits, they're gonna take it. So the bottom line is we have to create these incentives. And as you see, some countries are well ahead of other countries in doing that. But if you ask, how do we get uh, countries to do it? I would say, don't ask them to raise carbon taxes right away. Tell them this is where we're going. Tell them this is how we're going to get there, and then go there. And people will expect it. Uh, people won't be surprised, and then they won't react negatively because it's something that, that, you know, it's already built in. Now, I would say, how do we get there? How do we get to this um, uh, globally harmonized nirvana that we're trying to get to? Well, you know, Europe's basically had a good start. I'd love to see some of those European countries say, no, we're only halfway there and, and we're going to get there by, you know, whatever it is, 2030. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of other countries that don't have problems with credibility. I, I mean, for instance, uh, Singapore, just as an example, has a relatively low carbon price today, but they've already announced they're going to be raising that price uh, relatively rapidly over time. So, all we need to do is enshrine that in a bond. I don't think they're going to have a credibility problem. I don't think they have a credibility problem now. Uh, and so uh, I think the U.S. has a big credibility problem. I think if we, if we issued a bond like this, 
uh, probably the market expectation would be that we'd be nowhere near hitting uh, whatever our target price was. So I think you start with countries that are leaders. Uh, as I mentioned, in the United States, there are certainly states that are leading. There are states that already have carbon prices. And uh, so I think it's a matter of a different uh, sovereigns, different states moving first, and then uh, basically putting the onus on those other states to say, are you not going to price this appropriately? Do you not agree that there are these negative impacts from fossil fuels? I mean, you know, we don't worry about how much of any other commodity someone consumes because they paid for it. That's the same thing here. Have people pay for it and then make their own decision about how much they want to use. Absolutely. It's tragedy of the common writ large. Now, hold on, before I move on to uh, our audience questions, just a little uh, fact that might interest you. Did you know that the world's first inflation uh, index bonds were issued by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1780 during the Revolutionary War? I did not know that. <laughs> ah, there you go. You learn something new every day here at uh, <laughs> at Zien. Right. Uh, so our questions. Um, now we have got an interesting question here. Uh, you talk about fossil fuel subsidies across the world. What are the challenges associated with eliminating these subsidies? Ah, well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, how do we eliminate those subsidies? We do it by creating the incentives to reduce emissions that reflect the actual cost. And the easiest way, of course, would just be a carbon tax. You just say, okay, uh, at the production place, you know, whether it's the, the coal mine or the, the oil uh, pump, you, you just put on a tax reflecting the content, the carbon content of that fuel. And then that gets passed on down the line. That's the simplest way to do it. Absolutely. But, uh, and, and Bob, perhaps one of the first things to do is to look at the hidden subsidies where you're giving uh, fossil fuel producing companies, oil companies and, and, and coal companies, tax breaks for, for exploration, etc. If you if you eliminate those, they're hidden subsidies. The public probably wouldn't even know that they're, they're gone, but you'd begin to to chip away at that uh, at, at that headwind you're you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's right. And and many countries have done it, but others have not. And you can see by looking at that carbon barometer, it's very clearly associated with geopolitical, you know, advantage. If I've got a lot of fossil fuels, I want to slow this thing down. Absolutely. Now, we've got another interesting question here, which is saying uh, the UK and Europe is looking good relative to, to other uh, countries. What else should European countries in the UK be doing and what should they be doing to encourage other countries to, to follow their, their lead, ideally by making money from it? Yeah, well, the first thing that they should do, and they've already done, is uh, move forward with a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And that, among other things, creates an incentive for other countries that are not pricing carbon to do so. Uh, and frankly, if the Europeans and the U.S. Are to, were to form uh, a block with uh, both carbon taxes and carbon uh, border adjustment mechanisms, I think probably China and India would join, and pretty soon you'd have the whole uh, world doing it. So uh, Europe is doing the right things. It's already you know, made a good start. 
would it help if a European country said, yeah, we're halfway there and we're going to, you name it, $200 a ton by 2030? Uh, and you know what? The rest of you should do that as well. That can't hurt. Uh, you know, uh, but I would say Europe has already done the most by far. They're the example for the rest of the world to follow. And, you know, just keep up, keep at it. I know there's been a little bit of pushback in the UK lately, but let's keep that in the context of the UK has already got the strongest incentives globally. Yeah, but you've got to remember the pushback is coming from a politician who is desperately looking to retain power and is increasingly unlike looking unlikely to 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 do so and is grasping at, at any straw in fact the pronouncements by a prime minister were uh, were roundly attacked by industry itself so it the one thing that that is absolutely toxic to any form of investment is 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 policy uncertainty and and you know politicians are, are doing the economy no pro, no uh, favors at all by by introducing that and which comes on to our next question uh which is um if we are going to to push push uh forward to to net zero and, and decarbonization the elimination of these subsidies what impact is that going to have on inflation oh well that's a good question i mean it's not clear that it has any impact on inflation because it's a relative price that we're talking about here uh, you know, we're, I suppose, uh, making uh, in the short run uh, the, uh, the price of energy a little bit more expensive uh, because we're saying we're going to, you know, use these uh, cleaner ways to do things. And, you know, without the subsidies, they are going to be a little bit more expensive. On the other hand, uh, it also stimulates production. Right now, there is uh, a lot of uncertainty as you mentioned it, about future policy. And that uncertainty means I'm a little bit averse to investing. I don't know if I should invest in production of fossil fuels or invest in clean energy because I don't know which direction we're going. So if governments reduce that uncertainty, it seems to me that will in, in, in effect cause an increase in uh, production, an increase in uh, energy. And so it could reduce inflation going forward. It's, it's it's very unclear. It's not likely to have a big impact. Uh, now, we've got a question here regarding which countries have indicated interest in these bonds. Uh, now, I, I can put my halfpenny's worth in. I know that Chile and uh, Uruguay have both issued uh, sovereign sustainability linked bonds linked to their their carbon emissions, and it's certainly something which is of a great deal of interest to uh, Latin American uh, countries, and also uh, I believe some African and Middle Eastern countries are, are looking at this type of bond. Bob, have you got uh, have you got something to to add to that? Well, you're right. I would say first of all that uh, these carbon link bonds are very similar in concept to the type of bond that's been issued by Chile and Uruguay, although those bonds are more of uh, uh, quantity targets that they're trying to hit. And, and they include biodiversity targets as well. Yeah, biodiversity targets. And this is a price target for carbon. And the one thing that's special about that is that it is kind of comparable across countries. In the ideal world, we would have the same incentive to reduce emissions across countries. And so uh, it, is, it is a similar type of approach, 
And, and basically, any country that wants to be a leader uh, in this transition, uh, you know, uh, and has credibility, uh, is currently pricing carbon, that helps, right? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say those are the, the main criteria, that they want to be a leader and that they have credibility. Absolutely. Um, how do you get a transparent and agreed process for setting the carbon price uh, that adjusts the, the yield and the bond? The transparency of the carbon price is really a key issue here. Can we define it? And, and when we think about a country uh, and its policies, as you see, that we've already got seven policies. There may be the need for other policies. Uh, going forward, and obviously we'd like to cover more countries, so there's a little bit of work to do there in terms of grabbing that data. And uh, and I would say, you know, right now, this is just an idea. The, 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 there's no carbon-linked bond that exists, and so that means that, uh, you know, there's no simple example to follow, although we do have the TIPS example. Uh, and so, we, we, you know, we can move forward using that, and it's a it's a relatively flexible idea. So, you know, in terms of you know how many years to maturity, what would be the targeted price, how much uh, would you adjust the coupon as as uh, you know the the actual price deviations from the target. Those are all parameters that uh, could be adjusted uh, to make it fit to a, a given country. But in a given country, you're going to write uh, the parameters of the bond to create the incentives that you want. In other words, you know you want to reduce pollution, so you're going to put a price on emissions, and then you're also going to want to uh, incentivize removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. So you may have a promise there to pay for you know uh, real carbon removals. Uh, but you'd have to have then a uh, you know a set of standards and oversight from the government to make sure that those uh, removals are real. I, I like to think about a commodity. I call it carbon flux, the movement of CO2 out of the atmosphere into landscapes or, or into rock underground. And you know to the extent that there is permanent sequestration of CO2, uh, you know you ought to get paid for that. So those are the kinds of policies that we need to put in place. Excellent. Uh, right, hold on, we've got an interesting question here. Um, now, it's obvious that the sovereign carbon bonds have got huge potential as a hedge uh, against some of the policy risks uh, associated with decarbonisation, but it could be argued that they're fundamentally undemocratic because they actually constrain the policy environment for successive governments. How would you go about convincing policymakers that this is the right uh, approach to take? Yeah, well, you know, it, it turns out, of course, it's very hard to constrain a subsequent government. You can, you can have a constitution, you can have a law, but governments can always change and, and uh, can change their policies. But what you're doing here is you're putting in place an incentive for some subsequent governments to continue the policy. It will be more expensive for them if they uh, don't price carbon as had been targeted, as had been promised. And so that's about the best you can do. Uh, you know, you can issue a bond and you can say, this is what we intend to do. 
and then circumstances change. There's new information, and yeah, of course, a subsequent uh, government is going to have to respond to new information. You'd want it to, and and to adjust its policy. If it turns out that things are worse than we expect, then even though we promised, you know, let's say a, a price of $100, we might want to be at $150 today, or we might find that things are better, and actually it's not as uh, you know as bad as we thought. I'm not expecting that to happen, but you know, it's new information. Whatever your expectations are, new information you want to react to it. So uh, this doesn't really constrain future governments. It just puts in place incentives that cause it to be uh, uh, very difficult for them, uh, or or more expensive. Let's put it that way to to change the policy. Bob, could you explain a little bit more about hedging? How could uh, an investor in a, uh, a low-carbon energy project hedge their investments through the use of these, these low-carbon bonds? Sure. Well, you could, the simplest thing would be to buy, you know, to invest in the bond. And then to the extent that the government doesn't hit its target, that investment appreciates in value. In, in fact, in the world today, you don't even have to buy the bond. You can go to a broker-dealer and say, you know, I'd like to buy an option on the bond. Uh, you know, it gives me more leverage. Uh, if the bond goes up in value, I can get even more uh, value from an option. So uh, in, in the financial markets of today, uh, you could just think of any contract linked to this kind of a bond would allow you to hedge the risk that the government doesn't actually hit its target. Excellent. Um I'm awfully sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we've actually overrun our time. Uh, that was fascinating, Bob. Uh, I, I know that some of you have still got questions to ask, and I didn't manage to get round uh, to everybody who's who's asked questions. Uh, please, uh, if you email uh, your, your questions to us, we'll be able to pass them on to Bob, and Bob can enter into, into correspondence with you. Um, we're going to be posting a recording of this presentation online in a couple of days so that you can revisit what, uh, what Bob said today. It just remains for me to thank our today's, uh, today's speaker, Dr. Robert Litterman, the members of the FS Club who's made, who've made this possible, and you, our audience, who were so engaged with, with what Bob was, was saying. I would urge you to keep an eye on our forthcoming events page for more webinars. And coming up, we've got uh, Faster Payments Fraud, a Strategic Outlook for Financial Institutions, which is taking place on the 7th of November, uh, UEA Investment Trends and the Energy Transition on the 8th of November, and Has the City of London Benefited from Brexit as the Golden Days Continue to Fade? I think we can all answer the the, uh, the questions to that one, which is taking place on the 9th of November. And of course, uh, the Lord Mayor's show with our very own, the Right Honourable Michael Minnelli, will be televised on the BBC on the 11th of September. Now you can catch up with all our previous webinars on YouTube, uh, on LinkedIn, or our Pizzazz TV channel. Uh, thank you very much for, for attending today. We hope that we'll see you again soon. Goodbye.